for those of you I haven't met, I am Erin Stamil, and I'm a program coordinator for the Office of Free Health Studies. And I work in collaboration with the Honors College to prepare students and connect them to research opportunities. So we have Dr. Baker here today who has done a lot of research with students abroad and here at Baylor. And she's going to give you all the little nuggets of practical information and in getting started in your science Let me know if we need this, okay? I don't think it's on right now, and I'm not going to turn it on unless we need it, okay? It's just, I brought some examples of some feces here. Ta-da, you too can have one of these. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I'm not gonna let you touch them, but no, I'll let you touch them, but, but wash your hands first, okay? These are so precious to me because they represent many, many, many wonderful experiences with students and great memories. So I look at one page and I'll see a word and it'll take me back to some time when we did this or that. It's, it's really a wonderful set of things. And I just brought a few and I didn't bring some of the ones of students that have, have uh, are still around because I don't have them yet. It takes a while for them to get them bound and give them to me. But you're welcome to look at these afterwards. And I included several different kinds of feces, not just the ones that are, are with my work with Kenya. I want to, uh, oh, do they need to do this right now, Kelly? Afterwards, okay. So afterwards, we're going to ask you some questions. And if you were here before, we did the same sort of thing. These questions are very important today, and let me tell you why. Erin and I got together and talked about this, and the first question that often comes up from students wanting to do a thesis is, how do I find a mentor? That's a really tough question, and it's tough because there's not a systematic way to do it. It's not like a cafeteria where you can go to a website and look at the whole list and pick. Uh, we wish it were, and we're working toward that. One of the ways that we're working toward that is to try to get our arms around how many people at one time are doing a thesis and need a mentor, and what period of time are they doing that over. You would think we would know that, but we don't. So these questions are going to ask you if you are already working on a thesis, if you're not, when do you plan to start and when do you plan to finish? In other words, are you going to do it your senior year? Are you going to try to do it your junior year? Are you going to start it when you're a sophomore? Whatever. So that just helps us know numbers-wise we need to find mentors for 100 people or whatever it is. So that's why it's important to us. That's what it's for. We're here to talk about how to write a science thesis in particular. Now that can be defined very broadly, and we will talk about some of that, but we are talking about science theses. And also, part of this is that you need to do something that's interesting, and that doesn't just sit on a, on a shelf somewhere, but something that somebody might actually like to read. So we're going to talk a little bit also about how to write a thesis and make it interesting and good. So, the very first thing. Do something that matters. You will have a million different ideas about things to do, but I urge you to pick something not just that you are uh, mildly interested in or that seems easy or that there's a clear mentor for or whatever, but that you do something that really matters, not only to you, but to the world. Something that's worth doing because you're going to put a lot of time into this. And it's a shame to do that only as an exercise, although it is an exercise to learn how to do the process. So Steve Jobs said, if you are working on something exciting that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision fools you. Scientific research is different than other kinds of research. So you will have friends in the Honors College who will be humanities majors, English majors, whatever. Um, even some of you may choose to do a different kind of thesis. You may want to do a study of uh, uh, literature or poetry or art. 
and that is absolutely fine and it's the time in your life when you should do that if that's what you want to do. You may decide that you need to go be a poet instead of go be a physician. That's okay too. But even if you're absolutely committed to a scientific path, it's not a bad thing for you to consider this opportunity to do something else. So if you want to do something on the history of medicine in the United States or something like that, or if you want to study literature in fiction about the doctor-patient relationship, those things are great things to do. I encourage you to keep your thoughts broad in that way because you may come up with some things that would really be fun for you and be a nice contrast to all of your science courses. However, if you want to do a science research project thesis, then this is what distinguishes it from that other kind of thesis, okay? First of all, it's a method, not a content area. We aren't talking about do a biology thesis or do a chemistry thesis or do a physics thesis. We're talking about using the scientific method, which can be applied to any content area. It's a certain way of going at solving a problem, and it's a formula. It's very clear. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. And it's developed over several hundred years, and you can learn that method, and it is one way to answer questions. It's not the only way. You could think really hard about things, and that's another way. You could do thought experiments. You could go analyze literature and so forth. But scientific research is aimed at observing something in nature. In nature, we can construe very broadly. Um, it doesn't have to be just observing protons or observing trees or observing relationships between uh, chemicals but it may be observing the way women get to their prenatal care. So it could, but it's observing something out there in the real world. The other thing about scientific research is it is set up so that you can be fair about your question. Someone else could come along and do the same thing and would hopefully get similar results. Someone could come along and, and uh, question your research and you could say, oh yes, I know exactly where the weaknesses are, and this is something that was unavoidable, but we could do a better job in the future if we did such and such. Comparing apples and apples. What I mean by that is, let's say you decide that your hypothesis is that drug A causes effect B. Well, in order to know whether or not that's true, you have to allow for the possibility that you go out and test it and maybe it's a fluke. Maybe you just got that result by chance alone. And if you did the study a hundred more times, you wouldn't have gotten that. It was just random. It just happened. That's possible. It's possible that you measure drug A, but it gets metabolized in the body some different way. And so you didn't really get at what you thought you did. There are all kinds of checks and balances in the scientific method to make sure that you're answering the question that you thought you were answering and that you're doing it as fairly as you can. You're playing the devil's advocate to your own work to make sure that it's really the case that A causes B. And then finally, it's something that you need to be able to refute. In other words, you need to be able to prove or disprove something. That's very different than doing a study of music or doing a study of literature. That's a different kind of thought process, a different kind of asking questions. Both are valuable. This is science. Okay, so how do you decide? So we're going to tell a story here. And how do you decide on the plot? How do you decide on a research question? That's the hardest part. Here's why it's hard. Let's say you're interested in um, a disease. You're interested in malaria. Well, you may have an idea about malaria and you may say, well, you know, I wonder if malaria is worse in people that are older than it is in people that are younger. That's a reasonable question. So you scurry over to the library or you get on your computer and you begin to read about malaria and learn about malaria and whoops, you find out, oh, we already know that. 
<laughs> it's worse for younger people than it is for older people. So then you get frustrated and you think, well, there went my thesis. It happens all the time. That's okay. That's part of the research process. Getting the question nailed down is the hardest part. What you're trying to do is say, I'm interested in an area like malaria. And I'm going to go to the literature and I'm going to go to the very edge of what we know so that I can find the gap. Where is the gap in what we know? There will be lots of questions that are left unanswered, but where is one that I could tackle? Okay? So we want to know what kind of question interests you? Is the question worth answering? You could be in an area and talk about something related to malaria, but it could be so trivial that nobody really cares. Has someone already answered it? Very important. I've been on committees of students and, and had students that I mentored that started down one route and found out, uh-oh, somebody already answered this question. I have to change my whole thesis. It happens. But that's research. So expect that and don't get intimidated by that or discouraged by that. And if you have a mentor, then that person should be your cheerleader to go, oh, that's okay, you can do it, we'll start again. Normal. What would it take to answer the question? That's an important thing to think of ahead of time instead of after you've already gone through all this process. You want to say, okay, well, if I could answer it, what would it take for me to do that? And is that doable? Is this something that I would need 10,000 people in order to really know whether this matters or not? If this is something in the Antarctic, am I actually going to be able to go to the Antarctic and collect data? So is it really practical to do it? And finally, what would, I, what, what would I do with this information if I could? So if I found that malaria was more dangerous for young people, then would that change anything? Is there any action that I could take to make the world a better place based on that information? It might be a very esoteric, obscure, tiny point, but it's crucial for other steps to be done. So just because it's theoretical doesn't mean that it's unimportant it, or, or that it doesn't have a direct bearing on your life tomorrow. That doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. It doesn't mean that it's not important. Okay, so do something that you care about. There are several types of scientific studies, and you will hear these words thrown around, so I wanted to just mention them. People talk about basic research, and they talk about bench research. Generally, they mean the same thing. They mean lab research. They mean you go into a lab and you have specimens and you either treat them with some chemical or you look at them under a microscope or you dissect them or something like that. So you're working with a material in a lab at a bench. That's where the idea came from. Clinical research is what we think of as research on whole humans. So I'm going to do research on people at that level of analysis. So I may be interested in their hemoglobin, but I'm looking at the whole person and getting my data from the whole person as well as looking at their hemoglobin. Translational research is a buzzword that you will hear that is supposed to be the bridge between basic research and clinical research. So if you were in a medical environment, they would call it this. They would, so, they would say, from the bench to the bedside. So what they mean is somebody's got to do the basic research to discover a drug that's going to cure cancer. Somebody is going to actually work on whether or not that drug is going to work in humans and work in a particular kind of cancer, and if we did it, would it be worth doing, cost-effective. Somebody is actually going to do a clinical trial and do that work and pick some people to actually do it on and try it out. That middle step is translating these findings from the lab into something you can actually use with people. 
So that tends to be in the medical world. Community-based research may be basic research, clinical research, some of these overlap. But community-based research is where you are focusing your energy in a particular community, and you may or may not care if that says anything about anybody else. I do community-based research in Kenya, and it's very important to me what's happening in that community. And if it's unusual and other communities aren't like that, I say, well, that's interesting, but I just care about this community. I don't care if I can generalize to other people or not. I don't care if I can talk about other Kenyans or other Luos or other women. I care about these people because they're the ones I'm working with and they're the ones I want to develop a program for or help or whatever. If I can generalize to other communities that might be like mine, then that's great and I want to do that too. That's community-based research. International research, obviously, is what it says, and you can do international community-based research or international bench research and so forth. So there are different ways of cutting the pie here, different kinds of research, and you'll find that you gravitate toward some of these and, and not others. Now, you may not know. You know, you may have never been in a lab in your life, and so you don't know if that fits you or not. And you may get into the lab and realize, oh, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. And you may get in there and you may hate it. You might go to, uh, to do a clinical study. You might go over to HHPR and they have a lab where they bring people in and do all kinds of tests. And they do nutri nutritional supplements and find out if they help diabetics get in better shape, things like that. And you might go over there and, and try that on and see what that's like. And you might say, you know what, I hate this. I need to get back to the lab. Or you might say, oh, this is what I was born for. So you sometimes have to try it on, and I always encourage students to try different kinds of research if you have that option. There are different kinds of research designs. I teach a whole course in this, so we're not going to even go into it. But I wanted to tell you the lingo. I wanted to introduce you to the language so that you would at least be aware that there are different ways to go about things. So you will hear statements like observational versus interventional. If I go and do a study with patients in a hospital and I give them a certain drug or I give them a placebo, I'm making an intervention. If I go to Kenya and I ask women, did you deliver your baby at the clinic or not? If not, why not? I'm not changing anything. I'm not doing an experiment. I'm just observing something about them, okay? I can do that at one point in time, or I can say, let's look at them now, and let's look at them a year from now and see if they're different. Still not intervening, but I'm observing them over time. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about with those words. Okay, so what's the experience really like? Well, I can tell you, it is exasperating. It is one of those things that's circuitous. You will get very discouraged, and then you will be elated, and then you will get discouraged again, and then you will be elated, because that's the nature of research. You start working on a project, and it's very clear, and you say, oh, here's my predictor variable, here's my outcome, I think this causes this, and I think it also has to be, we have to consider these variables in the middle crystal clear. You go out and measure it and you realize, oh, that's not so clear after all. Oh, maybe I can't do it that way. Oh, maybe that didn't mean what I thought it meant. And you get all discouraged because it doesn't turn out like you thought. And then you do some more work and you realize, oh, here's a way out of that. I can combine these things and I can think of it this way and now it'll work. And you do that and you get your results and the results go, no doesn't support your hypothesis. No, no. And you go, oh no. Then you say, oh, I forgot to do such and such. I need to adjust for such and such. I need to look at the difference between men and women. Maybe it's different. Maybe boys that have worms and malaria are different than girls that have worms and malaria. You know what, they are. Okay, so you have these kinds of, this is a journey that you go through. And when you write your thesis, you're telling this story. The biggest 
problem that you have when you write your thesis is that you're really expected to explain a lot of this stuff. And you have to figure out how can I do this in a way that's just not totally boring and tedious, but also is um, responsible to the reader to say, well, I did this. I want to show you what I did here so you understand what I mean when I say this. Or I decided I'd lump all these people together, but here's why. I had a really good reason. Um, it is empowering. By the time you get through, you feel like you could go do anything. People that carry this thing around with them walk about three feet off the ground. They are so proud when they get done. It is a great feeling, and I can tell you they've learned transferable skills. These people, so here is, who is this? This is Stephanie Allen. Well, Stephanie knows a whole lot about reproductive health in Africa now. Well, what if Stephanie decides to go work in China? What if Stephanie decides to go work in Dallas? Is she learned, has she learned anything from doing this thesis? Yes. That goes back to the things that we talked about if you were here a few days ago, that it gives you a way to think about problems that is useful no matter what you do. Because you're learning a method, not just a content area. Um, I'll never forget uh, Robert Widongan. Some of you know him. And Robert was in my office one day, and we were going over his results. And all of a sudden, we both got so excited, we started standing up. We were over at the whiteboard, and we were going, look, this means this and this. And we can rethink this whole thing. And the, the, we were already at the results section. We knew what our results were, but all of a sudden, we realized, this is even cooler than we thought. So we had a wonderful time. I went to one thesis defense last spring. That was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. It was wonderful. The person did their thesis, and you can't plan this. You know, sometimes it just happens. But the person presented it, and the two people who were there besides me were captivated. They asked great questions. We got into this discussion about what is the meaning of life based on some of the things that came out of this thesis. And well, what have you learned about yourself in this? Well, we had one of the coolest conversations I ever had. And I mainly just sat back and watched it happen and thought, this is magic. This is one of those times I'm having fun and I know it. You know, you know you're in a cool experience. So things like that happen. And then, of course, I wouldn't be doing you a, a good service if I didn't say however much you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Okay, setting up a good structure. I went to graduate school, and I got a PhD. And when you get a PhD, you have to do a mega thesis. So you have to do a thesis on steroids. It's a big deal. You have to do a dissertation. It's the same process that you're going through. So I thought, okay, I need to finish by X amount of time. So how am I going to get from here to there? So you know what I did? I said, well, one thing I've learned about myself is I've got to not do it at home. So I found this spot in the library that was my spot. And it was, it, because I was a graduate student, I got to have a little carol that had a door. And I don't know if that's available, but you, can, you, you get the idea. You find a spot that is yours, and I could leave my stuff spread out. And my rule was that I went there every day at 8 o'clock. And you know what? I had no time limit for myself. I could stay there five minutes, or I could stay there five hours. You say, well, how did you get your thesis done? How did you get your dissertation done if you only stayed five minutes? I never stayed five minutes. I got to reading this stuff and working on it, and I thought, oh, man, I can do this, and I'd work, and I'd get it done. But what made me do it was not having to decide every day Am I going to go work on my thesis? Well, what time? Well, can I fit it in after this? Blah, 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 blah. If you're always in a decision mode of I have to decide uh, if I go work on my thesis, you never get it done. So I encourage you to set up a structure. That's my basically uh, role, uh, rule of life. I think setting up a healthy structure so you don't have to think about things and, and decide things every day is really a healthy way to do it. So that's what I encourage you to do. You figure out what works for you, but you set up something and then keep stick with it. Okay, so you're telling a story once upon a time. So here's how you actually write a thesis, okay? 
you start out and your introduction is the teaser. Your introduction is the place where you say, here's the setting, here are the characters, here's what the plot is, here's what the story is going to be about, and you catch them in the first paragraph. Okay? You know, if you submit a, a, a manuscript to a publisher, a fiction book, they will read the first page and that's all. If they don't like it, that's all they read. Maybe it's a wonderful book, but if you don't catch them on the first page, they got other fish to fry. They got many, many more manuscripts that they're going to read. So you gotta catch them at the beginning. So that's the function of your introduction. I say several places down there, several uh, notches down, write this chapter last. That doesn't make sense, does it? That's what I do with my students. I say, you know, you're not ready to write the introduction until you finish the whole project. Then you go back and you say, okay, here's how I'm going to frame it. My brother was a filmmaker, and my brother used to talk about when he would start making a movie, he had to have a concept. I got to understand what that meant over time. In other words, I'm not just going to say this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened but I've got some sort of concept that ties this together. You know how I get my students to do this? They do a storyboard. They actually get big poster board stuff and they get sticky notes. You know why they do this? Because I did this in my office one time with a student and it worked. So I said, okay, Monica, you've got all these little nuggets of things, all these different ideas, all these different findings. Let's put everything on a, on a sticky note. So we wrote down every individual thing. And I said, okay, now, I want you to put those up there in an order. So she said, okay, well, let's put this idea here and this idea here and this idea here, and we did it, you know. And then I said, well, you realize, of course, that you could make a whole different story if you emphasize this part. It would be a totally different thesis. You could tell a different story if you told it from this point of view instead of this point of view. And then we said, but you know, that's not near as interesting. So this one really captures me. This is the way I want to tell the story. So you sculpt it around a concept. And you can't think that up sometimes until the very end. So that's why I say do that last. Okay. Uh, in your literature review, what you're doing here is building a case. In other words, you're proving to somebody that this is a reasonable question to ask and an important question to ask. And in fact, if we don't answer it, we're not going to be able to go to sleep tonight. It's crucial. So you're building a case by saying, this is what's out there. You're saying, here's the big problem I'm interested in. And here's what we know in general. And as I work my way through what we know, I get down logically to the point where there's this question left. Some people at the end entitle that section the gap, and now you know why I said that, the gap in the literature. So you've made your case, it's based on this literature and this literature and this literature, and now this is what we need to know. The next thing you do is you ask me, so how many articles should I read? Here that is the next one. And so my idea is um, that the answer to that is yes. So you go read as many articles as you need to, to A, know what you're talking about, and B, to see if anybody else has done this. That's just all there is to it. So what I tell my students when they start this process is, well, you got to at least do 100. That's just bare minimum. Some people do 1,000. It's true. One student I know that I was on her committee did, um, uh, was reading in the 3,000 level number of articles, and lo and behold, she found that one person had done what she did. She started over. So it happens. So just reading a few articles will begin to give you a feel for things, but please don't kid yourself that you can really be a master of an area by just reading 20 or 30 articles. You begin to get the big outlines of what's going on, but you need to know that better than anybody. You need to educate your mentor on what your topic is. So that takes some reading. That takes some time. Okay.
Now, how do you find articles? The very best way is to go to bailey.edu slash library. There are lots of different strategies and you can get lost in saying, well, do I do RefWorks or do I do Web of Science or do I do PubMed or what, you know. There are lots of strategies. Learn one and do it. Baylor has just done a new thing this semester called OneSearch, and it's down there at the bottom. It's brand new. And you go on there, and, and they say, uh, what do you want to know about? And you type in the box, I want to know about malnutrition in uh, pregnant women in western Kenya. Click. It goes and does the search for you, like Google Scholar does, and it taps into all these different databases. It's magic. And then when you look at it, it will tell you, oh, this came from Web of Science. Oh, this came from PubMed. So you can see what the strategy was, but it combines a lot of these things. It's amazing. There are sessions at the library, like for an hour, that tell you how to do this stuff. Who wouldn't do that, you know? There's a session on something called Zotero that I have my students always go and do. It's a software where you find an article, you download the software, you find an article, you click on it, and you add it to your Zotero database. You can organize it, and you can put it in folders or whatever you want to do. Then at the end, let's say you, um, you do your bibliography and your junior reference section, and your teacher says, I want you to use um, the APA style on this. So you go, okay, well, how many, um, do I have to use quotation marks or underline or periods or semicolons, you know? So you go to this little thing on Zotero and you click on APA style and it takes all your references and puts them in APA style. It's magic. It's magic. You go to baylor.edu slash lib and put in Zotero, and it'll tell you, oh, there's a workshop by Ellen, the librarian, and she teaches you how to do it. And you go to the library, because they have all their computers in a row, and she can, you know, she can help you. That's why you do it over there. Okay, um, there are people, did anybody notice that there was a woman in the BSB today in the atrium? Yeah, she is the science librarian. She's got a PhD in library stuff and she knows how to do science searches. And she sits there waiting for people to come and ask her questions. It's incredible how many resources there are really to help you do this stuff. Okay, hypothesis. So in your story, you've set the stage, you've developed the outlines of the plot, you've got the characters, and now you go, oh no, there's a crisis. So you reach this crisis point, in other words, you've set up your question and now you go, okay, here's the problem. Here's the hypothesis. I think, and this is where you stick your neck out. And you don't just say, although you can start out, at the end I say you may write research question. You can write something in a question form. You can say, uh, does malaria have a bigger effect, a worse effect on old people than young people? That's fine, but then you gotta commit yourself. And that's why you've done all that reading. And you go, hypothesis. Malaria is worse for old people than young people. Then you do a null hypothesis and, and you say, there's no difference in the way malaria affects old people and young people. And then you go test it. You may realize that you have several hypotheses and you can make major and minor, or primary and secondary. You can do 1A, 1B, 1C. You know, you can do all of that. You just say, this is the main thing I wanna go after, and then these are some things I'm gonna look at because I'm in there anyway. And you do that, okay? The way you start it, once you get to this point, you are doing formula writing. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's like when, um, when I learned that different people wrote all the Nancy Drew books, it was like telling me that there was no Santa Claus. I was so upset that Carolyn Keene wasn't a real person. I was really upset. Well, it's because they had this workshop of people and they would give them the formula and they would say, okay, it needs to be 212 pages. You go 30 pages in and by this time you've set up the conflict. 
and then after this, you go 30 more pages. You know, it's the same as when you go to a, um, a romantic comedy movie, and you know 45 minutes into it, you're at your low point, and they're having a big fight, and there's some conflict that they can't get over, and it looks like it's not going to work out, you know. And then you know at 52 minutes, they're going to resolve it, and then there's going to be a little denouement. You know, it's going everything's going to be okay, right? That's formula writing. This is formula writing. You have to say it in certain words. So it's your ideas, but you have to say it just right. And you learn that because you go read 100 articles, and you see how they all do it. So my suggestion is that you start with the general objective of investigating malaria and its effect on aging or you know, in the something like that, then this study hypothesizes that specifically. So you can say, this is my general area and this is what I'm focusing on. Got it? Okay, then you have variables. Your variables are very simple. You have a predictor. You have an outcome. You have some variables in the middle that you want to make sure that you say hello to and you address. So let's say um, old age over here, age and its impact on malaria. I'm saying, is there anything about age that's going to tell me about the malaria severity? And then I say, well, you know, I probably ought to think about whether or not they're males or females. I don't really think that's important. I don't have anything in the literature that makes me think that they're going to be different, but I just need to put it in there. Everybody always puts in gender and age. You know, it's just basic. So you put that in the middle. You say, oh, this is something I'm going to adjust for, or I'm going to throw it in just to make sure that it doesn't change things. And it may be called a confounder, but you have a set of variables in the middle that are like that. You can do a path model, which means you actually write down your variables and you make a little map. Here's an example. This came from Andy Waller, who was looking at CRP, which is C-reactive protein. It's an acute phase reactant in the inflammatory process. And looking at that in its relationship to malaria, malaria and its severity um, and other kinds of illnesses to see if malaria had higher CRP than others did. So he did this, and he was also looking at temperature and hemoglobin. He was looking at uh, different other kinds of illnesses. He was controlling for body mass index and so forth. So you can draw it out, and that can really help you. Here's another one where she was looking at nutrition and malaria. Okay, then you get to, okay, so what am I going to do about it? And then you describe your method. This is even more formula writing. This is exactly the language that you read in the literature. You talk about, okay, here's my setting. Here's my sample. Here's how I decided who was going to be in my sample and who wasn't. Maybe it was randomly, or maybe you took the first 20 people that walked in the door. That's okay. That may be a reasonable thing to do, but you got to say it. Then you say, okay, and here's how I'm going to go about this. I'm going to do a questionnaire or I'm going to do 20 assays, or I'm going to uh, add this chemical, and then I'm going to come back two weeks later and see what it did. And you describe exactly how you did your, um, your work. Then how you measured your variables. Well, if I say, do you have malaria, what do I mean? Do I mean that somebody thought they had that, and that's what they told me? Do I mean I looked at them, and I said they have fever and chills, and so they look like they have malaria? Do I mean everybody who got medicine that's for malaria? Do I mean everybody that got blood drawn and it showed malaria? Any of those are okay, but you just got to say, this is how I did it. Then you say, okay, so now how am I going to analyze this data statistically? You don't know that yet. That's okay. Is anybody here in statistics yet? You know? Okay. Okay. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you, you will learn this when it's time. But you say, this is my plan ahead of time. And then you go to the Institutional Review Board of Baylor, and they give you permission to do your study if it deals with humans. If it doesn't deal with humans, if it deals with animals, you have to go do that. If it doesn't deal with animals or humans, you don't have to go through that. You don't have to jump through that hoop. But if you do, you have to prove to them that your study is ethical, and that it respects people's confidentiality and anonymity. 
Okay, my belief is that this works really well. You get a hardbound book, not a spiral notebook, just a blank book that you buy at Barnes and Noble, and that's your thesis book, and you date it like a journal, and you keep it in temporal order because you'll go, you know, I know three weeks ago we had this meeting, and I know we talked about this, we made a decision, but I can't remember what it was, but I know it was at that meeting that day, and it was right before the OU game, you know? So you go back to that day, and you go, yep, there it is. We decided we were going to only test girls. And you made a decision back then for good reasons, but you can't remember three weeks later. What, now, why did we decide that? I know there was a reason. So you write it down. So every time you, you make a decision and you say, okay, we're gonna do it this way, you keep a record of that. That is really helpful. Or if you decide, okay, we're going to uh, change our hypothesis, you write it down. Um, when you analyze your data, I'm not gonna go into this because it deals with statistics, and uh, so I'm not gonna talk about that, except to say there's some hints of ways to do this and not do this that make a lot more sense. A lot of people will get a printout of computer findings, and it'll, it'll stay online, it'll stay virtual and electronic. That is really dangerous because you lose what's going on. If you print it out, you take your yellow highlighter and you go, oh, Star, there's my major finding. See page four. So you write all over it. You treat it just like a book. You annotate it. You say, this is that variable. Oh, remember when I did this? So um, then you write down your results in English. And you say, I found that three times as many children had malaria as adults, whatever. Then you put things into graphs and pictures if you can. I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes at the bottom. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I wish I knew who said it, but I don't at the moment. I'll try to find out and put that online. Um, so my point about this is once you get the results, you feel like you're done, but you're not. That's when the fun starts. That's when you sit down with your mentor and you go get a Coke and you, you go, okay, well, let's look at this one more time. And you look at just what you found and you go, man, look at this. This isn't at all what we thought. I think we need to run it this way. And your work is not done. So that process is both really fun and also where people tend to hurry too much. So they don't get as much out of the results as they really could. Okay, then what happened? You're gonna have descriptions of things, and then you're gonna talk about this variable related to this variable. In my study, I wanna know how many people I had, I wanna know how many old people, how many young people. Then I wanna know about malaria, what, how many people had malaria and so forth. Then I wanna look at the relationship between age and malaria. Those are two different kinds of things. So you have sets of findings, and the way you organize them is according to your hypothesis. So you go, here's my primary hypothesis, blah, 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 here are the results. Here's my secondary hypothesis, blah, 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 results. So here's an example of some ways that, I mean, you take uh, your data and you make it visual. And you're gonna do that with as much as you can because it speaks to you and speaks to your reader a lot better. Things like this. You know, if you look at that in words rather than on a graph or numbers, you can't see it. It's when you draw it that you start seeing these relationships and you start going, oh, look at that. Look how this started and so forth. Okay, chapter six is your discussion and that's where you say this is what it all means. So you, in your results section, you're saying this is the result I found. Malaria does not impact old people as much as young people. Then you say, okay, so did that support my hypothesis or not? And if it didn't, then now let's talk about what that means. Wow, that means that blah, 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 blah. That means that uh, this whole area of research is on the wrong track, that we need to be doing this instead of this, or whatever. So you talk about the implications, what they mean, not just what your results say. And this is where, what I said about mirroring, what I mean is when you start your introduction, you're really big, you're talking about 
health in the world, you know, and then you get more and more narrow and you finally get down to the point where you're talking about your particular thing. This is exactly the opposite. You start with your particular finding and then you generalize back to health and the world. And that's how you end it. So in that section, you're also going to have, in that chapter, you're going to have a section that says, these are my warts. These are the things that weren't great about my study, and I know it, and I'm going to put it all out there so that you know that I know it. And you're going to say, you know, I could only look at 48 people, or I could only look at 48 samples. And somebody somewhere is going to say, well, that's not enough. You can't know anything from that. And you go, well, you know, it's better than ignorance. I know a little bit. And most people may go, oh, that's great, that's plenty. But you know what the criticisms are going to be ahead of time because they're in four areas. Again, we're not going to talk about these because this is research design. But there are certain ways that you look at your errors and you report them. Finally, you make a brief final statement in your conclusion that says, okay, so for the umpteenth time, this is the punchline and further research needs to be done, blah, blah, blah. That's the end. Okay, and then the last thing, see how much you can possibly learn about the research process, not just the content. Think about it as I'm learning a skill. So I'm learning to ride a bike, but that's also gonna help me learn to ride a tricycle or a unicycle. It's a skill to go gather information. It's a skill to be able to identify questions. It's a skill to figure out how you would answer that question in a methodical way that keeps you from screwing up. And that's it. Any comments or questions? I don't know if that was helpful. It may have been too general or too specific but hopefully it gave you something to think about. Any questions? That is just the first question that always comes up. How do we find a mentor? How do we find a project? And I, the first thing I would say is go to professors that you know that are working on things that you're interested in. How do you find that? Well, you'll find out in classes for some people. You will hear from your friends. You can also go to the chemistry website and it will have a section on their faculty and it will list different faculty members' interests and what they're working on. Now, you know what? Probably 50% of the time that'll be out of date. And they'll say, oh, well, I did that last year, but I'm working on a different thing now. But it's a great place to start. And if you go see somebody and they're not doing that work anymore or they can't take on any new students, then they may say, and then you say, well, can you suggest somebody who might be interested in having a student work with them? And that's how you find out. Now, we are working to try to make it real clear. These are 50 professors who all want students, and here are the projects, and here's their contact information. But we're not there yet. Great. And yes, there are grants as well that you can apply for. Yes. Yeah, I would think so, but your mentor ought to guide you in that. If you, if there's someone, because you're going to be working with someone, you're not doing this independently, you're going to have a cheerleader, you're going to have a coach, and that person may or may, that person might not be doing exactly the research that you want to do and maybe will just supervise you to do a project, but they still are going to be able to keep you from landmines, you know, they're going to keep you from wasting time. 
Yeah, you do. You do. It's just that sometimes there will be a mentor that's willing to supervise you to do something that's slightly off topic for them, but they're, they know enough about it that they can supervise it. So that happens occasionally. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, sorry. Not necessarily that professor. You may want to know about the content area, but not necessarily that professor. Both. They can do it either way. Yes, you may have access to data that uh, is from an international source and you don't go there but you analyze the data here. So that's a possibility. Or you can go to another place and gather data yourself in another country. So both of those are possibilities. You may not have to gather data yourself or you may not get to gather data yourself. There may be data out there that you analyze. That's called data mining. There are a lot of places that have data already available and they just need somebody to analyze it. So that's another possibility. Other questions? Are you encouraged or discouraged? Encouraged? Okay, if you're discouraged, then come see me, I'll give you a pep talk, okay? You can do this. You can do this. It is really hard and it is really doable. It is. And you will really be glad you did it once it's over. And it will help you so much in so many ways. So I admire you for taking this on. I admire you for thinking about it enough to want to come at 7 o'clock at night and talk about it. And I'm telling you, you can do it. And you will do a great job. And we'll all be proud of you. And we'll be sitting here with your thesis up here next year or two years, whenever. Anything else? Okay, thank you for coming. We now have this little uh, few questions that we'd like for you to answer, if you would, about these issues that we've just been talking about. Shall we? Okay, guys, if you saw the note at the beginning, um, if you haven't already downloaded the QR code app, um, go ahead and scan that um, QR code now and fill out the survey. Not good enough.